the subject of America and the Great War and the role and the exploits of the American Expeditionary Force in the battles of 1917-18 is something that in the coming year on the old front line I intend to look at in greater depth. We've as yet not really covered much of the aspects of the American involvement in the Great War. So to start that off in some respects, I was really pleased to be joined by Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast, one of the oldest Great War podcasts that kind of paved the way for the rest of us to do this when we could. And it's wonderful that there is this big selection of First World War podcasts now, and I hope that that will only continue. But if you don't follow Mike on Twitter and you don't listen to his podcast, then all the details of that are on the Old Frontline website with links to his Twitter feeds and to the podcast. So go and check that out because there are some really fantastic episodes to listen to. But I was really pleased to have Mike on for a trench chat. So we'll listen to that now. Welcome to the Old Frontline podcast, uh, Mike Cunha from the Battles of the First World War podcast. Thanks for having me on your show some months ago, and it's great to have you on here. So welcome, Mike. Paul, thank you. Um, th- thank you first for coming on my podcast earlier in the spring, and and um, and thank you now for the opportunity to, to come on your show. I, I listen to it all the time, yours and, and uh, Matt Dixon's uh, Footsteps of the Fallen. They're, they're always like at, at the top of my queue. And your your recent uh, Loose episode was fantastic. Your, your recent episode on uh, All Quiet on the Western Front was fantastic. Um, so th- thanks for letting me be on a show that I that I hold in like really high regard. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's very kind of you. I mean, yeah, it, I think it's, you know, I mean, your podcast is kind of older than, than all of ours, really, because you started quite some time ago during the actual centenary. But it is a kind of a... a golden period for podcasts about the first world war and military history which is a great thing so you know in kind of your in terms of your own kind of fascination and interest of the great war and and how you came to to do a podcast a pioneering podcast really you know how did that all come about i mean like um my interest in in world war one actually like began with um when, when i was like 13 years old i happened to see on on mtv uh, a video by the the band Metallica. They had a song called "One," <clears throat> and it was about it was a song about a severely wounded soldier. So they they happened to to use footage from a film called Johnny Got His Gun. I did I like looked more into it and uh, found the book by Dalton Trumbow. I, I read it all while I was thirteen, and uh, like <laughs> and from there. Um, we kind of rolled into my teenage years and we were doing at the time was the, the mid nineties. It was, um, the, the 50 year anniversary of world war two was happening. So I apologize to people who've heard this story before, but like in my teenage need to be contrarian, uh, everybody else is into world war two. I'm going to be into world war one. So, (laughs) and from, from there on, it's, it's pretty much continued ebbed and flowed over the years, but like definitely about 10 years back with the the coming of the centenary i really got interested in it again and then listening to podcasts um i uh had the rather arrogant idea that like i I could do one of these too so so i started uh podcasting 
Well, far from arrogant. I mean, they're great. I remember listening to one of your Verdun ones down in Verdun, actually, which is quite quite a good thing to do. Oh, that's super cool. So I'm, I'm so glad you did it because I kind of think that, you know, these the podcasts kind of give a, a way of explaining aspects of the First World War that is, in some respects, kind of unique, really. It's, it's like, for me, standing in front of a group of people on a battlefield tour, but we're reaching a much, much bigger audience than 40-odd people on a coach. Right, right. I mean, I, I have um, my... my the host that that I use on um, Libsyn, like it, it, it allows me to see like where, where my listeners are, like, you know, where, where the podcast is being downloaded all across the world. And it's, and it's like amazing. Like, I, I love it. Like I have one, uh, a, a couple of downloads coming from like Somalia, like one, one in Kyrgyzstan and, and um, you know, it's Ethiopia. I mean, Nigeria, like Brazil, like countries all over the world. And it's amazing. Like the, the reach that we have and the, um, and I always think of, of podcasts as a, um, like s- small D de- like democratization of, of media. Like now, you know, just some random guy who reads books and takes notes, like can put out a podcast. Whereas, you know, a few, you know, a, a generation ago, it, it, we would have been restricted to, you know, ma- major news corporations and everything and, you know, and the ability to break into that world. So now, now we can just do it ourselves. So um yeah <laughs> yeah it's a great thing and i think you're absolutely right about the kind of democratization of of uh of history in that way because anyone can start these things anyone with just even basic kit with their with their mobile phone can can do a podcast right right and so the the key i think is is having this ability that that i can that i can do this like the the goal is to um be as as correct as 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 accurate as possible, and to make as me as as few mistakes as as possible. So, try to keep a, a high standard. We, we all aspire to that goal. It's, it's, right. it's a difficult one. <laughs> I don't think yeah. a book's ever been published or a podcast ever broadcast that where there's not at least one kind of right uh, mistake right. in there. Particularly when you're kind of talking about something you love and you kind of get carried away. It's very easy to kind of go off down avenues and trip over yourself. But there we are. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. So, um, I mean, you mentioned about kind of World War Two that for most of your kind of contemporaries, they were looking at storming up Normandy beaches or the fighting in the Pacific and places like that. But there were you entrenched in the Great War. And I suppose for, for us in Britain, that's that's kind of difficult to understand because it's such a part of our, our culture, whereas in America, that's very different, I think. Right, right, right. So, you know, like uh, um, I've said elsewhere at least i hope i have um you know for us world war ii is our main effort you know in in the as far as like the world wars go um that's the one where we were involved much more and for a much longer period of time and it where it was really really the effects of it were really felt here in the u.s you know there was a lot of there was a lot of rationing you know um a lot of materials were were unavailable for many years no new automobiles were built um women you know were unable to to get um what were then considered luxury items during those years like like pantyhose everything was being used for the war effort and there are there are stories from my area here in the US that on May 8th 1945 when when news came that the that Germany had surrendered, that literally um, church bells all over this part of Massachusetts were ringing, and people like were stopping their cars in traffic and getting out and and hugging each other, and you know that this 
this global war, at least part of it had had come to an end. You know, we, we were still fighting Japan at that time. But um, so I think that for the U for the US, like World War II is is the heavy effort. Um and World War One, we also experienced rationing and and the the dramatic call up of millions of men and everything. But but our involvement in it was was so much shorter um, that I don't think. And 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 you know and then of course World War Two eclipsed it. So World War One very quickly like receded in, into the background. Um, I also feel that World War Two has a much clearer sense of of. Um, Right and wrong, good versus evil. I mean, clearly, um, the the Nazi regime was was evil um, and and needed to be dismantled and destroyed. You know, whereas, you know, like sometimes, I, I always think of like, well, sometimes I explain to to people like, well, you know, I mean, like, yeah, the Germans release gas, but that's because they managed to weaponize it before the British could, because the British were working on it as well, and 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 you know, all parties fired used gas shells um in in their artillery bombardments you know the the AEF included so you know when, when you think about those things like um it's it's a little bit murkier with with World War 1 but that's you know what part of the fascination it's it's you know it's just such a such a human human event so yeah and i think one of the interesting things for me is that when i came to the united states quite a few years ago now I remember seeing in, in towns and even kind of what we describe as villages, war memorials from the First World War. I was kind of following the, the Civil War, Civil War sites anyway. And mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised to see these because I kind of felt that there possibly wouldn't be that kind of thing in America. But obviously there was. So it's not as if it's kind of not there on the landscape, as it were, but it's it seems to be ignored in America. You know, like you say, is it the fact that there is no clear baddie or... Or is it more complex than that? Maybe I think so. I I I think it's the shadow of World War II, just like just like kind of glosses over it. I mean, it's it's funny. Like I see like World War One like everywhere I go. Like we have a a small war memorial in our in our downtown here, um, and and I live in basically the equivalent of, of a of a large village. But um, but we do, we do have them in 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 um in the cities and towns here, um. But but it's funny, like they just don't get a lot of a lot of notice. Um, like they they get noticed by me, like much to the annoyance of my family. Like I'll I'll pull over the car and be like, I gotta go check this out real quick. There's a doughboy right there in that field, and um, you know, <laughs> they tolerate it for the most for the most part. But um, yeah, after post war, like the United States, they definitely in, embarked on that. Um, I think much like happened in what Europe in Europe with with memorial building and everything um it happened here as well like Massachusetts um itself like it I I think there was I may be wrong on this so going back to trying to be as accurate as possible but there were some some six or seven thousand men from Massachusetts who who uh perished in in World War one and so you know when you think of the 50, 50, 60,000 combat deaths of, of Americans in World War One, like six or 7,000 came from this state alone. Like we, Massachusetts paid a pretty heavy price for it. So we have the war memorials around here and people may not remember them. Um, my local uh, American Legion Hall, like they, um, no, I really intend no disrespect to them, but you know, they, they said like, oh, like we named our hall after this one 
man because he was the only one killed in combat and i did a little bit of research and like three others who are who are on the wall of honor there in the back um they they were also killed in combat you know and it's like like we just forget these stories time passes on and and these stories you know they become old photographs on the wall and people forget what the stories were so and yet the american contribution in the first world war was immense it was a major part of the route to victory in 1918 yeah yeah no absolutely so like we went you know from the from the time of our um declaring war on germany on april 6th 1917 you know we began with what was basically a uh a glorified constabulary of 130,000 men you know that, that, that we called the united states army uh but very quickly swelled its ranks to you know we we drafted some four million men excuse me sorry uh we drafted four million men uh i believe two or well over two million were sent over to france by the end of hostilities and and of that of that number of two million men anywhere between a half million and and 1.2 million saw or were involved in um direct combat operations along the western front um you know, at the time that we came in, um, France and Great Britain, you know, they had been fighting the Germans for three years at that point and, and were, you know, I won't say exhausted, but, you know, you guys had seen a lot and suffered a lot. And and we brought like a new infusion into, into the Allied side. We, you know, um, as, as much as I would like to be annoying and say as an American, like, well, you know, like we came in and won it for you guys. Like it, it definitely like that's just a poor joke. Um, I, I think it was all of us. Like I really do, as cliched as it may sound, like I really think it was all of us working together under uh, Marshal Foch's plan of of hitting the Germans everywhere at once. Um, but I think American manpower definitely, you know, lent um a major contribution towards uh um towards eventual allied victory in 1918 i mean and and um just to mention one statistic i i believe that uh by the end of 1918 by like the americans we we were holding the lo the largest sector of the front after the french who always held the the largest pit of uh bit of, of the western front yeah, and I, and I think there's a there's a note I think in one of Haig's diaries or a letter, I forget which, where where he says if the war continues beyond 1918, that he sees it's definitely going to become an American war, uh, and he ponders on whether the British contribution will ever be remembered if that is the case, considering the size of the American expeditionary force. So it's kind of ironic that we're here now talking about how the Great War is forgotten in America. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it really is because, like, even even me growing up, like a lot of the books that I read on on World War One, it was it was mainly about the the British effort. You know, but um, I'm limited um, to to what's written in English. Um, my French like remains incredibly poor, um, and and until the time that that it improves, like everything I, I get my hands on is um, is, is English, and hopefully, hopefully, there's more and more books that have been translated but uh but yeah i i grew up you know like it was the psalm it was it was ypres you know the first second third battles you know and then and then in the big fights of 1918 then you start to hear about the uh the american contribution 
Um, and this little known, you know, like thing that happened, like the near Verdun, like the, the Merz-Argonne offensive, you know, and then <laughs> I come to, you know, read more about it. And, and it's, you know, it's to this day, the Merz-Argonne is our largest, uh, largest battle ever. Even, and I know this may irk some World War II historians, but like, yeah, it's even bigger than the Battle of the Bulge, guys. Like, way bigger. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I wonder because I mean, I, I know there was Pershing who commanded the AEF, feared that his kind of force would be split up if he if he didn't mm -hmm. keep his eye on the ball with units being sent to the British and units being sent to the French to kind of bolster up their line. Uh, and the fact that the Americans did eventually fight on their own, as it were, in their own sector, away particularly from their other fellow English speakers, is, is that kind of maybe how some of this ended up being lesser known? Because most British people have no clue as to what the Americans really did. Yeah, so I, I do think um, it, it's where we wound up um, on, on the Western Front. Like, because we, when, when American forces arrived in France, um, and I'm really going to, paraphrase and oversimplify this but um the the leadership in the BEF and in the the French army um were basically like uh you know hey guys you know really appreciate the enthusiasm but like you don't know what's going on here like we've been fighting this war uh for you know for three years now like you guys need to come under our training for a little bit so that you you guys get get the lay of the land and how how this war works um and I think the Americans in our in our like na naivete and yeah, a little bit of arrogance, you know, we were like, you know, Pershing and his leadership, like they were like, you're gonna tell us what's happening. Like you guys have been sitting here in trenches for three years, blowing each other to bits. Like, I'm sorry, like we fight wars with rifles and we maneuver. That's how that's how the job gets done. And um <laughs> so um yeah, we, we wound up having having to learn a lot uh, very very quickly, and and we did learn those lessons in in the AEF um, very expensively. I um, I believe like in our in our first engagements, like like Second Battle of the Marne, and then especially like in the um, Mers Argonne, um, we learned the lessons that that um, the BEF and and the French Army learned way back in 1914. Like we learned them quickly, like the soldiers on the ground began to adapt uh, as quickly as they could. But yeah, they, they were uh, very, very expensively learned. Um, and I, I, I apologize for digressing there, but I think maybe part of why um, our efforts may, may not get so much attention is that like, um, while some of our units, namely like the 27th and 30th divisions went on to fight with the BEF on the Somme, um, and later two other American divisions fought up near Ypres. We mainly like embedded with, with the French forces, took our training from them. And then they would kind of, they would, they would put us in, in a frontline trench and monitor how we did and then hand off sectors to us. Um, and then in the, once the American first army was created in the summer of 1918 and Pershing secured that Americans were going to fight as a, as a separate and and distinct national army we we received french sectors of of the line like the the san miel sector the the salient there that we that we eliminated in a couple of days and then and then very quickly moved up to the Meuse argonne which was you know near the old uh Ver, verdun battlefield so 
you know, it's, it's funny, like in, in the 1920s and into the 1930s, um, the, everybody knew about the, the Mers-Argonne. It was a huge thing. And, and the stories that came out of it, you know, you've got Sergeant Eldon York, which was, um, you know, a huge publicity campaign, but also, um, you know, men like Charles Whittlesey and the Lost Battalion, like they were very well known. Um, but just in the 30s, you know, new new storm clouds started to form on the horizon and then World War II came. So um, those those men were, you know, they, they just fell into the back as the GIs took over uh, from the, the Doughboys. And that, and that Merzorgon offensive, I mean, you know, you kind of hinted out there, it's a really important part of not just the American experience in the Great War, but part of its military experience in the 20th century. Yeah, I really think like in in reading through, so having, you know, I, I was in the, the military for a few years and um, and it's, I always catch myself saying like like oh my god like we would we would never do that today like we would we would never allow guys to attack with like without an objective we would never allow um every soldier to know like what the job was like that every soldier from you know from you know battalion commander down to the lowest private like everybody would know like we are taking that hill we're going to pound it with artillery, you know, and, and then we're going to attack in this direction. So if all of us die, like, you know what you need to do. You keep going until you get to the top of that hill. Um, but that wasn't the case in World War One, And so it's, it's a great point that you bring up, because I really think that this is where the, the modern United States Army was was born. And, and we realized, you know, Man, there needs to be a lot of um, like the uh, combined arms offensive, like using you know infantry tanks, also air power, artillery, you know, working with the communications of the time, which were very uh, basic and very very rudimentary. There was, I believe, there was wireless was just in its infancy uh, in 1918. Um, so we made the you know we made unfortunate mistakes. They were part of, again, a very expensive learning process. Um, and then you've got Pershing for the first time in the United States' history, like leading, bringing millions of men over as an expeditionary force, like to fight in a, in a European war like that, that had never happened before. So everything, everything that Pershing did, like, you know, later, uh, Eisenhower, uh, studied that later and, and built off of off of that so you know it was it was a lot it was a lot but yeah that was definitely the the birth of of um the modern united states military there and that those are kind of last six weeks of the war for america were pretty intensive battles not just with the mers gone but it continued literally right up to the last moments of the war yeah yeah so the mers gone was was 47 days um one one million two hundred thousand American soldiers involved uh, in that battle. Um, twenty twenty six thousand killed. So you're looking at about on average like five hundred doughboys being killed every day. You know, and of course there were there were the, the bloodletting was different on each day. Like uh, ninety five thousand wounded. Um, but yeah, and and forty seven days of continuous fighting um, all the way up. To, to the very last moments of the war. And sometimes, you know, there's there's a lot of controversy in 
you know, in in why why did attacks continue on on the 11th of November, knowing that the war was gonna was gonna end? Um, what I have heard, and and I, you know, again, I, I may be wrong or, or may have misunderstood, but um, what I've heard is that you know nobody really knew if the Germans were going to honor this agreement, like they had been asking for it on on or about November 7th, I believe, and Marshal Foch told the German delegation that like okay like you're gonna you know okay we'll we'll cease fire on november 11th but i want you to know like i am going to continue attacking you until that moment because i want you to understand that you are defeated um and that you know we are we're going to continue hammering you so that you know to 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 hold to that ceasefire when it comes so i believe the americans took you know took that you know, th those were our those were our orders um, from from Allied command. So we kept on attacking, pushing it until the last minute. Now, were there many officers who wanted to get their, uh, you know, their their combat stripes? Like, of course, you know, and, it, you know, and I'm sure many, many, you know, American uh, lower enlisted, you know, like privates and sergeants like, you know, hey, I want to make sure like I, I get to fire my rifle in anger, too. <laughs> so. There was, I'm sure, I'm sure there was plenty of that, but but that was our mission, and and it was to keep keep hammering at the Germans in, until eleven o'clock. But then eleven o'clock came, and then uh, I mean, on on the Meuse-Argonne front later that night, it, uh, on the old Verdun battlefield, uh, I understand that that Germans and Americans like they lit a huge bonfire in in the former no man's land and were you know hanging out like now suddenly suddenly like like old friends like it, it's it's it just boggles the mind that it's crazy and that yeah it's crazy yeah. one minute they're enemies the next minute they're not yeah i mean it's interesting that it's because i mean we, we did a documentary about last day of world war one we, we looked extensively at the kind of the american side of it and, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's easy to criticize it like at stenay where they they capture the town of stenay because it's got baths and and the divisional commander kind of looks at it and, and you know his men will get a bath but it costs 300 casualties and that was the price of a bath, you know. There's kind of that side to it. But then you look at the kind of go up the chain a bit towards Pershing. And like you said, they, they didn't believe the Germans would honour the, the ceasefire because that's all it was, the armistice was a ceasefire. It wasn't an end to the war. Right. Uh, and, and why not capture positions that you know you can capture now rather than have to capture them when the Germans have built up their forces again later on. So I think it was a different mindset to, I think, the British forces at that time who after four long years of war were, were weary and no one wanted to be the last man to be killed. Right. 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 Yeah. And I, so the, the Imperial war museum years ago, they, they did a great podcast series called voices of the first world war. Um, and one of the episodes was like, was, was the arrival of the Americans on, on the Western front. And, and there was a, and it, it was so cool because I think a lot of these, Interviews were conducted in the 1960s, about about a half century af after uh, after World War One. So a lot of these men, the men being interviewed, they were British veterans and and um, they were older gentlemen, but a lot of them still really sharp memories and everything. And and uh, I think one exchange that that captured like the the American and, and the British sentiment <laughs> was um, this this British gentleman. I believe he had been an officer and. Uh, and you know they said you know well we had some we had some Americans show up 
in in the frontline trenches and we were and we were supposed to show them around and you know kind of show them how things were going and and um you know this this american lieutenant came and you know was all fit and and uh very you know very motivated and um came with the and the and the the British gentleman, like he went from his British accent, like into an American accent, you know, and, and this American comes and says, you know, where are the goddamn Germans? And, um, you know, I, I apologize for my terrible British accent here, but he was like, what, what rubbish, but who, who would say such a thing? You know, and just like, yeah, that's, that would be us, man. Like we, we would say something like that. <laughs> we're we're well-intentioned, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think my, my uncle uh, was uh, in the Royal Navy and he landed guys from the 29th Division on Omaha Beach. Uh, and he said that they, uh, on the run-in, they were saying to him, don't you worry, I won't try and do an American accent, but they were saying, don't you worry, Limey, the United States is here, we're going to kick down kick down Adolf's front door and, and the war will be over. And then, of course, their great tragedy, they, they all get annihilated by machine right. gun fire. And yep. And, and to a sense, there was a kind of similar thing, I guess, with, with AEF units, like you've hinted at, you know, with the, going into the, the Mers Argonne with those terrible casualties. That's a staggering kind of casualty rate. So when, when the war ends with, what, 60,000 combat death in, in just that kind of six-week period or whatever it is, America wants to commemorate that not just at home but on the actual battlefields as well. Yeah. So the, the, I think the, the greatest memorials that we have are um the the cemeteries that that we have there um in i have visited uh i haven't visited them all in in france and belgium so i know i know two or three i know the the mers argonne cemetery fairly well that's in uh romagna sumon Faucon. it was um it was on a ridge line that uh was was very heavily fought over by units of the the third and thirty second American divisions, um, right on the where the Germans had their their third line, the the Kriemhildestellung. <clears throat> it was their third position. It was part of the the vaunted Hindenburg line that ran along the Western Front. Um, so that's a very um, that's a very moving moving monument. We 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 have a few monuments in the area. Pershing, General Pershing, was very strict post-war uh he didn't want people like uh he didn't want any private memorials uh dotting the landscape he was he was very strict about that um he also didn't want many unit memorials um so uh if you go out to the Mersargon, you've got you might see these white obelisks everywhere with a red diamond Th those represent the the fifth division um my friend rob laplander and i we usually have a joke of you know of like oh like you know, was was the fifth division in France? Like, how, how can you tell? You know, um, there, I believe there, there was at one point there was about thirty six of these white ob, ob, obelisks in the area. Uh, now there's less, you know, due to time, but um, they hurriedly got those in place before General Pershing could could stop them. So, and there's a there's a memorial to the three hundred sixteenth Infantry um, on in on a hilltop in the the. Uh, the Meuse region um, that Pershing was also very unhappy with when he saw it um, being built. Uh, but the story goes that uh, local French authorities came and and they basically created a French inscription on one side and they were like, it's a French-American monument. So now it's good to go. And uh, <laughs> Pershing walked away fuming, I guess. But the big I think our big memorial, uh, those those are the cemeteries. Um, 
and the the just those fields of of white crosses um it's just it never never ceases to move me especially the the Merzargan. like it just goes on and on and on um and it's it's very powerful and it's it's a very lasting testament um and i and by saying that i you know i i want you and your listeners to understand that We'll get into it in a little bit, but having walked the the Arras battlefield for the first time, like seeing these, you know, British smaller British cemeteries dot the landscape everywhere, that's that's also very moving um, in in a in a different way, you know. Uh, but yeah, like the uh, the American cemeteries are, are are really something, and and if you ever get a chance, the the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery is, I believe, it's the largest American cemetery outside of the U.S. It contains over fourteen thousand um, uh, battlefield casualties, battlefield deaths, um, most of them from the Meuse-Argonne battle, um, which all occurred again in a period of, of forty-seven days. It's incredible. I mean, when I take English groups there, the film "Oh, What a Lovely War," which I don't know if you've ever seen that, it kind of ends with. Uh, Sir John Mills as Douglas Hay standing next to some white crosses and then it pans out this fantastic shot that was filmed on the Sussex Downs with this kind of endless white crosses. And actually a lot of them say to me, having seen that film, I say, is this where that was filmed? Because to them it's kind of exactly what kind of the losses of the First World War should look like and how they should be represented by this hillside of of white crosses. So, and I, and I think that, you know, as 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 allies, we kind of pull each other's legs and, and we take the mickey out of each other quite a lot. But I think no British group can ever be uh, can ever fail to to be moved by seeing the cost that America paid in, in that conflict by standing in a cemetery like that. It's just staggering. Yeah, yeah, and especially you know, I, I mean, again, like with having having covered the Psalm, um, and and the like a really came to know the the british effort like despite all my reading as a teenager and everything like i somehow got into my 30s like not quite understanding that that the psalm was more than just the first of july like it was you know it went off four months afterwards and and covering the podcast uh episodes covering the psalm in in the podcast like i really came to understand like oh my god like this was such a massive effort like now i understand why why World War One is so important to to the British people, like the you know the, the the scale of losses that were incurred in just this one battle in four months, and then you know you had four years of war, but like, um, but yeah, like like seeing the cemetery at, at the Merzargan, you get to really know, um, and knowing some of the people who are who are buried there, like you get to know their stories, and and like they're not, it's not just a name on a piece of marble, it's. It's there's a person and there's a story and and some of the like most amazing stories sometimes um, that you know that 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 are now represented there. Um, and, uh, there's a the cemetery superintendent of the uh, Wazane Cemetery. Uh, his name is is Bert Cloud and he's he's a great guy. And a lot of times on on Facebook on his personal Facebook page, like he will post names of um of of soldiers who are buried in his cemetery um and he'll tell a story like he does the research on them um and then at the end he always he always says um you know we we speak their names you know speak their names so that so that we don't forget them that's something that's really really like really like 
gotten into me like it's like wow yeah like like you speak their names and and that way they they live on so um that's something that i've tried to to do like with with the podcast like as long as we speak their names of of uh men who fought at the Somme and Verdun and and now in the in the Merzargon currently like like they they will live on like you know eventually like I hope this podcast lasts for a while and and people listen to it for years but every time they hear that name of of you know whoever's being talked about like that that person their memory lives on a little bit longer it's really important yeah and I, and I think that you know sometimes we don't even find out about these things but I'm sure that telling those tales inspires somebody to go there and and find that name and seek that grave out and stand at that grave and that's kind of what remembrance is is all about isn't it really mm-hmm. yeah and you've just come back well recently come back from a, an absolutely epic journey across the old front line um so where did where did you go and where did you end up man <laughs> all right so if i can if i can start with with the the day that i that i left um so i you know in, in mid-august I, I finally had to come back home um like the missus was was very patient with me being out for a month but it was like okay like i'm I'm really glad you're coming home <laughs> so uh but i was at at charles de gaulle you know like like checking in my bags and you're going through the line and you have the 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 passport check there and and there was a, a woman was was checking my passport just asking me a few questions and she was french and and I apologize, like I, I don't know accents very well, but I but I do love accents. And um she had what I believe to be like an, an African uh an accent of, of African descent. And it was was beautiful. And um uh, she was asking me, you know, like, you know, how was your time in France? And I was like, Oh, it was it was absolutely wonderful, you know. And and what did you do? Like, well, you know, just tourism. And um, and she asked me, like, and how long were you in France? And I and I said, I been in France for four weeks and she she like looked up from my passport she was like four weeks like and what did you do what did you see when you were in France and and I was like ma'am I saw everything like (laughs) I didn't tell her but uh but yeah I pretty much saw everything that I could like so um I arrived in mid-July I I first thing I did was I went out to the Meuse region and prepared to lead my own uh battlefield tour with with my buddy rob um so i spent a week preparing for that and then a week of of actually doing the tour and we went deep like we went out into the fields and everything and um you know there was even uh you know i I told the guys you know we'll, we'll get you right into it right you know right into the the filth of it and uh we did because we we stomped through a field that had just had manure spread all over it so it was like what we told you guys it was going to be real so uh so that was that was that was really a great experience and i had the the guys the the guests we had on the tour they were just fantastic um i don't, I don't think i've laughed that hard in years um none of which i can repeat on this podcast but it was it was a great time um and after that uh, we, Rob Laplander and I, we spent a week working on um, another project that we had, which is Doughboy MIA, um, where we are we're trying to we're trying to locate and and hopefully eventually recover 
uh, Americans, um, uh, American doughboys who who we know that they were killed on the battlefield, hastily buried, and we're trying to locate their remains and and hopefully uh, you know bring bring them home, um, you know in in a sense like yeah, adding closure to these cases. Um, sometimes people ask like like why are you doing this? Like well you know like because we have um, we have the technology today to. That that can really take us much further than than um, the graves registration services could in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and you know, and our country made a promise to these guys that like everybody comes home. So, um, and they did the best that they could. The AEF and the the GRS afterwards, they they really did the best they could with what they had to to locate missing men. But um, we want to try and carry on that mission uh, just a little bit more. And, and if we can, you know, we, we would like to bring some of these guys home. So we spent a, a week doing that. We brought Rob's son on a whirlwind tour of Normandy, um, which was always cool to see. Like we stood on, um, on Omaha beach on a fine, like summer evening, you know, and, and it's, and it's a beautiful place. And you, you know, it's kind of hard to think about like what happened there. Like, like you, can't even imagine it you know after the the normandy tour like i i went off on my own a, a day in paris with with some cousins which was an awesome experience as well uh and then a, a whirlwind tour of uh ypres and um arras and uh and of course like you know, um i used a uh, a book called walking arras by <laughs> yourself as as the guide to the area so <laughs> it was it was awesome <laughs> Good. Only well, only good. scratch the surface of of Ypres and Arras, and I and I really hope to to return. Um, but it was it was a fantastic trip. I got to see so so much. Um, so thankful to to be able to see the the cloth hall in in Ypres. You know, something that I've seen in books. You know, since I, since I was a teenager, and I was like, oh my god, like I'm actually like standing here. I'm, this is it. This is the building. And uh, there was a. Uh, there was like some kind of town fair happening during the, the time that I was there. So lots of like carnival rides and stuff like that in, in the town square. So didn't really make the place photogenic, but, um, but what the reason I bring that up is that I did go to see the last post ceremony and it was, it was really moving it. I didn't record it. I didn't take any photographs of it. I, I just wanted to experience it. And it was amazing. Like at, at 10 till eight, in the evening, I noticed the the thumping techno music from downtown ceased, and then people were talking at at the Menin Gate, you know, conversation and everything. But then at eight o'clock, like hundreds of people, on just a you know an August evening, um, not a not a particularly historic date or anything, I don't believe, but just hundreds of people gathering there, and then um, at eight o'clock, everybody went silent. And we watched, you know, we just listened to the ceremony. I was far back. Um, but yeah, it's like very, very moving and, and like absolutely like tears, you know. So it was really something like what, what an excellent, um, what, very moving experience. And what an excellent experience as a whole. I'm, I'm very thankful that I got to see that. I don't think uh, you, you could spend your entire life on these places and it would never be enough, I think. Uh, but the, the last post, I, mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard it, but it is 
always, always impressive. And I think so many people go there and you can see all these kind of, it's a modern thing with all the cameras up and the phones and everything. I think just to pause and listen to it and, and kind of take it in is really important. So I'm glad you had a chance to do that. Yeah. And, and to see the, the, the Ypres salient, you know, the old salient, um, uh, there's a gentleman, Roger Stewart, um, Ypres battlefield tours. Like he, he took me around, but a friend of mine and I, and, and, um, I just couldn't like one thing that I couldn't understand, you know, the Mers Argonne is a fairly large, wide open battlefield. Um, the Ypres salient, this place that I've read about for years, like it was like, we were at Hill 62 and, you know, I was turned around and was like, look right over there. Like those two spires, that's Ypres. And I was like, you're kidding. Like, this is, it's a small, mm. small place, you know? So that, like that, that so many men uh, in the BEF, like were confined in this salient, you know, under the German um, eyes for, for years and years. And that, that they managed to survive, you know, that anybody managed to survive, especially, as the landscape was completely wiped out. Um, I, like I still found that stunning even in 2022. So it, it's interesting. It's, I think in this, this, this year, for me, it's taken on a kind of greater meaning when you stand in the square at Epe and you, you know that it was pretty much almost dust by 1918 and that, you know, a thousand odd miles across Europe, a war is taking place again and right. cities are being reduced to dust again. Yep. Um, and there is this kind of feeling that they they too one day will rise like phoenix from like a phoenix from the ashes. Yep. I take I I take solace. Like I always think about, you know, like you, you have movements like like the 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 Nazi regime and other evil, you know, evil regimes that that exist throughout history. And um and I apologize for for you know, well, yeah, they they are just I mean. The Nazis were, were evil, you know, the, the Soviet regime was was fairly evil in, in the USSR. Um, but I always think like like they those regimes, like they will never last. Like they will never last. Um, because like the, the human spirit will always overcome. Like humans want to, humans want to, they want to dance, they want to laugh, they want to sing, they want to be happy, you know. And I, I don't mean to make that overly simple but I, I just hope to illustrate that like the human aspiration towards being happy towards towards something better towards peace you know um you you know you laugh you dance you sing like when when there is peace and that's that's when we're at our best um so a city like Ypres though it may have been you know knocked down and leveled to the ground by 1918 it was rebuilt and it and it thrives today like it was is really amazing, especially post COVID. I've really come to appreciate seeing people in crowds, and it was wonderful to walk amongst people in in Ypres and, and uh, you know just see Belgian a lot, hear a lot of English. Like I didn't even have to attempt French for for a day or two, and uh, it was you know. But just to see people out having a good time and seeing the carnival rides that was obviously there for kids, it was like yeah, you know, yes, there was a location. I believe it's near the 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 I I apologize I don't want to mispronounce this the H O O G E is that Hooge crater yeah Hooge yeah, crater right to, yeah. so is that, is that the the place where like right behind the museum there's now a a kids like like theme park yeah right so we were talking about that while we were visiting the area and we could see you know one of the rides in the background and um you know 
like, well, you know, some people tend to think of this as like disrespectful and, and like me personally, and I speak only for myself. Like, I, I think that that's like, no, I, I, I would bet that, you know, if, if there's any ghosts of Tommies on the battlefield looking at that, I think they would be like, no, nah, that's, that's okay. Like, that's cool. Like we, we want kids laughing here. You know, it's, it's good. That's, that's what we were here for. So, um, you know, that's just my personal. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. It's kind of, you know, what's, what's the meaning of sacrifice? It's to kind of free lands and people to be, be themselves. And, you know, if a battlefield's turned into a place where children are happy, then what better use? Yeah. Yeah. And the war, you know, like there's, like you said, there's a war happening in Europe now, but like eventually it, it will end. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the human spirit will, will over overcome that as well. And when you're out on the ground on, on this battlefield trip, you know, what, having read so much about it and researched so many aspects of it, you know, what, what kind of for you is, is the, the, the big part of that experience? What, 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 how does it make you feel when you're on that ground? Um, so like the, especially like with, with the MERS, it's, it's like, um, in that area, um, there's very, very little has changed in, in the century since, you know, since the war ended. Um, and a lot of the villages, though they may have been smashed down to the ground, um, they were, they were rebuilt and, and the local French population, I guess they told the French government, like, you will rebuild this village and you will rebuild it exactly as it was before. Um, so, you know, nothing is over a, pretty much over a century old, but it all pretty much looks the same. Um, and the, the the villages are very, still very small. A lot of the ground is still the same. A lot of the, um, the, the, the woods are, are still about the same size and everything. And uh, so, you, you really get a sense of like, wow, like this is what they were fighting through. And a large part of the Murs are gone. Like it, it was a limited maneuver battle. You know, we were steadily pushing the Germans back. So you didn't have the the lunar landscape of, of Verdun and the Somme and Ypres. So when we're in like the, the Bois de Zogon uh, near uh, Cunel village, like that's, you know, that's roughly what it looked like. It was probably pretty beat up with some shelling, but it wasn't completely annihilated, you know? Um, so you, you get the sense of like, wow, this is, you know, I'm walking where they walked and, and this is pretty much what, what they would have seen, you know? So it's, it's very, very, very moving. Um, we visited the, the site of, of Lieutenant Sam Woodfill, um, an, an American officer who earned the the medal of honor near Cunel. um same church is there same church building you know they, they rebuilt the 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 belfry um but the the barn that that hit a german machine gun nest like that that's still there it's all still there it's amazing <laughs> I, I think that's it and it's kind of the, the pages of history come alive when you go to these places and everything you've read makes even more sense than it did before yeah, yeah. I always and I visited last la, about a year ago in in November of 2021. We were there doing some some work for Doughboy MIA, and we were in the Argonne. And you know, I got to show like my my daughter came with me, and and uh, got to show her like, well, like kiddo, this is the Argonne, and it was cold. It was raining. It was pretty miserable, and uh, everything was muddy. There was two colors. There was like gray and brown, and uh, but I. 
you know, going through those those forest roads with the fog and everything, I, I always, always almost expect like I'm waiting to watch like a column of doughboys like come out of the woods and march in front of me. Like I would be completely you know unsurprised by like yeah this this is it like you can still feel their their the presence of all these these men who who walked who marched through that area like they're they're everywhere the past doesn't seem very far away in these places does it not not at all not at all not at all and also you know like on, on, on the psalm and ypres to think about like um i know like uh hellfire corner today is like it's just a traffic circle that like with with no memorial staying what it was but like like i know it and and i was like yeah wow amazing right here like this would have been such a dangerous place to be a century ago you know and then can still feel that and and really appreciate it and then look around and see the the built-up villages and everything and, and be like you know what like yeah like but but life comes back life does return always yeah life renews and and here we are, you know, we're nearly a decade from the kind of Great War centenary now. How do you kind of see the future of the Great War, and in particular, kind of through podcasts? I think you know what i I think the Great War will continue to generate interest through podcasts. Because um, i I was expecting um, with my own podcast, like in twenty eighteen, that that I was like, okay, well. The centenary's over, so now you're probably going to watch your download numbers start to drop off as people, you know, move on to other subjects of interest for them. And and um, but I haven't, I haven't. In fact, like I've I've continued growing. Uh, it's been fantastic. And and um, I mean, I'm not on the Spotify like number one or two, but like I'm, I'm very happy with what's what's happening. Like I I get emails from people all over the world, um, you know, who who talk about the podcast, talk about their own interests in, in the great war and their own connections. And, um, and that's just continued on since, since the, the, the centenary years. And so I, I think it'll continue um, to, to go on here in the U S I think as we get closer and closer to the 100th anniversary of world war two, that will begin to take precedence, like in the kind of national spotlight, but, but um but I think I think World War One will will always have a a, a place, it's especially like in the in the podcasting world, for sure. But who knows? You know, I mean, I, I know you you've not seen All Quiet on the Western Front yet, the new version. It's an amazing film. But you know, who knows? Will will this prompt a whole load of kind of further Great War films, and will there finally be a film, for example, about the Meuse Argonne Offensive, oh, and, and, and could that suddenly propel? The first world war into the eyes of, of all new americans in a way that it hasn't before oh i i really wish like somebody would would get behind it and and do that idea or or cover a battle like um <clears throat> blankmont ridge you know like where you know the the u.s marines fought that battle and and just suffered unbelievably heavy heavy casualties um you know if somebody would would just do that and and give it as as accurate a portrayal as they could i mean some of the so many of the stories from world war one like they're um i can't believe like movies haven't been made i mean um i covered a gentleman I, he really interests me is uh um john lewis barkley who in in the the Mers Argonne, like he was a scout he was always out ahead on his own 
um, or working with with two other friends. But he's the one who, you know, found found a German machine gun, found thousands of rounds of ammunition nearby, found an abandoned tank, put it all together. Like, and and he took on a German battalion like by himself, like and uh, earned the Medal of Honor, like barely survived, but earned the Medal of Honor and uh, went on to live into the 1960s. And and uh, I, I'm just like, how, how has like Hollywood not found this story? Like, this is wild that that this one person did this you know so um i mean as you know as far as like action you know that that would that would be amazing uh to see that see that accurately portrayed well until that day until i see your name in the lists of historical advisors for that film we can only but wish <laughs> one can hope right one can hope <laughs> that's a good thing it's a good thing so we'll we'll put uh, obviously links to your podcast on onto the uh, whole frontline website so people can find you. Uh, if they're not listening to you, I really don't understand why because it's kind of really important podcast that you're doing and shining a light on on aspects of the First World War that you know uh, a lot of audiences are not aware of. It's a really good thing. So thanks for coming on, Mike. Thanks for talking about the Great War. I'm sure this will not be the last time that we'll do this, and hopefully one yeah. of these days we'll sit down together on a battlefield on the western front and and do this live yeah absolutely that would be fantastic and any any time like it, um the, you know the 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 proverbial door to this podcast is always <laughs> it's always open for you <laughs> uh, thanks buddy i appreciate that thank you well thanks mike thanks for thanks for joining us and uh here's to that day then we're, when we're back on the old front line thank you and you as well cheers mike You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>